Um, when I was a kid, I remember seeing a David Attenborough program about the Antarctic and seeing all these huge, big, I suppose you would call them creepy crawlies. We call them invertebrates, but creepy crawlies, but big ones, sort of stuff that comes in nightmares. Wood lice, which are this size. Really big sea spiders, which are this size. And I remember David Attenborough in his characteristic voice saying, and all of this is because the waters in the Antarctic are so cold, they have lots of oxygen. Therefore, animals can grow bigger. Um, I must have been a bit six, and I remember hearing it and thinking, how do you know that? Hey, David Attenborough, who told you that? What's the evidence for that? Okay, not very nice six-year-old. But, you know, that's what I thought. Um, I'm a professional biologist. And in the early 90s, someone published a scientific paper showing that there was a relationship between the oxygen in the water and temperature. And that when it was cold and there was lots of oxygen, animals were bigger. So this was a scientific study which showed there was a relationship between the two things. Um, and and I, I got it across my desk, and I remember thinking, well, okay, they're related to one another, but how do you know one causes the other? How do you know that it's the, the, the more oxygen that's causing the animals to get bigger? And so I wrote a paper which caused an immense amount of trouble, just saying to this person, you don't have the evidence for this. And in fact, I think, dump, 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 dump. And it started a, a, a fight which is still raging today in the scientific literature. Um, the person that I had a go at um, was, I didn't have a go at them, I had a go at their ideas. We're actually best of friends, see each other quite a lot. But I had a go at the idea because I think he's wrong. I don't think he gave the evidence to support what he was saying. My whole academic career is about looking at ideas and saying, where's the evidence for that? That's what I do for a living. Look for evidence and do experiments to try and see what evidence there is for something. So when you're given a passage from the Bible to talk on, which is about someone who is saying, show me the evidence. I'm there. I can see exactly what they're saying. Because let's face it, whether you're talking about oxygen in, 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 in big animals in Antarctica, or whether you're talking about the way that you live your life, or what you do with your life, or how you act in life, who you listen to really matters, doesn't it? There's a whole bunch of people out there who are really up for screwing up your mind, putting all sorts of weird, wonderful ideas into your mind. And it's difficult to know what's, what's what. And certainly when it comes to faith, one of the things I hear most from my, my colleagues and friends who are colleagues is, well, you can have your faith, but I want evidence. And in one sense, I totally and utterly agree with them. Totally and utterly agree with them. You have to know why you think what you do. You need to know why you believe what you do. Many of us live unquestioning lives. In fact, unless you make a, an effort, you do live an unquestioning life. All sorts of th stuff comes at you from friends, from the television, and you pick it up and all of a sudden it becomes your belief. And even people that sit in churches, 
Sometimes people sit in churches because of tradition, because it's a good thing to do, because they say the Bible tells them. There's all sorts of reasons. And I can hear the scientific part of me saying, yeah, but give me the evidence for this. Give me the evidence for this. So having started that, you think I'm just about to renounce faith and tell you all to go home. (laughs) Depends what your faith's in. And that's the story of Thomas. Whether I tell you to go home or not, this is rubbish. Depends on what your faith's in. I want us to read the, the story about what happened after Jesus was killed and came alive again. Now, if you're a sensible human being and you haven't heard this before, man killed, comes alive again, the antenna should be up. People tend not to come back to life again. Even if it really matters. I remember standing over my mum as she was dying and just praying that she would come back to life again. Didn't happen. Let's... Now, follow me on this, right? There's one of these nice books um, on your your pew. Grab it, and I might even give you the right page number to go to, because I I want you to follow the story. This is a story which, traditionally by Christians, has been called the story of Doubting Thomas. I would put to you the wrong. That's not what the story is called or about, but we'll see So it's page 1089. And it's in one of what's called the Gospels. There are four accounts of Jesus. And this is the fourth one. And this is written by a guy called John who was really close to the events. He was there for a lot of them. And when he's writing, he's not just telling us a life story. It's not just this of biography of Jesus, he's actually given his comments and, and he picks stories which tell us one thing in particular. If you turn the page over, in fact, go to 1090 first of all, and right at the top on the, the, the left-hand side, we find out why John wrote this down. This isn't just written so that, oh, that's quite interesting, hmm, Jesus, oh yeah, I never thought about that, I'll read about David Beckham next. I'll I'll read about the Queen next. It's not just a biography. John wrote this for a reason. And it says, number 30, and it says the purpose of John's gospel, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why the guy's writing this. He's not writing an impartial history. No, this is quite interesting, and that's quite interesting. This is a guy whose whole life has been changed by this character, Jesus, and he wants to share it. That's the reason for the story. It's the reason for the whole story. It's the reason for the story we're going to read. Turn back again to page 1098, and where it says, Jesus appears to Thomas. Right, follow me. Now, Thomas who also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The week beforehand, Jesus had actually turned up alive and talked to all of the disciples, but Thomas was somewhere else. We don't know where. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
come on. <laughs> now, think about it, 21st century people. You're in a room with a bunch of guys and some women who say to you, we've seen a dead person come back to life. Come on. You're not just going to take that, are you? Seriously. I mean, it's okay reading the holy book and saying, well, that's you know, it's a very nice story. If you were there, what would you have thought? If you had been Thomas, right? what would you have thought if these people said to you, see the guy that you've known for three years, that we followed for three years, that was killed by the authorities, murdered by the authorities, he's alive again. Doesn't happen. Does it? So, Thomas's reply to this, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There must be some people in here who are thinking, good for you. Don't be taken in. There's a whole load of people out there. And sometimes even your friends get it wrong. Then the story jumps a week forward. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Every single one of us in this room in the same position as Thomas. We weren't there when Jesus first appeared to his disciples. Unless, I'm sorry, there might be some very old people here who remember that. That's, I apologize for insulting you and I hope you enjoy your 2000th birthday. <laughs> but we weren't here, right? We're in the same position as, as Thomas. And here's this gospel, here's this writer of John saying to you, and also the songs we've been singing. He's risen, he's not dead. Come on. Do these, do these Christians really believe this? People come back from the dead. It's a bit wacky. Be okay if you stick with, be good to one another, be nice, go to church, God will like you. But why confuse it with all this stuff about a man, good man, dying on a cross, bearing the sins of the world? Is that real? Come on. Again, let's be a bit more realistic here. Does that happen? Bearing the sins of the world and then coming alive again? Thomas certainly found it hard to believe. He'd been with Jesus for three years. And don't get me wrong, he loved the guy. He really loved him. If you go back into John's Gospel, one of the things that happens is Jesus is going to go up to see some friends in a place called Bethany. And the authorities are out to get him. They want him dead. They want this religious nut dead. Only because he's more popular than them. And because he doesn't believe the right stuff. And he says, no, I've got to go. And everyone else is a bit scared. And Thomas says... Yeah, let's go with him. Let's go and die with him. <laughs> so Scottish. 
Yeah, okay, you know, gonna get killed, let's go with him. Real loyal guy. Very loyal guy. And he felt it was a bit pointless. And then later on, the night before Jesus was murdered, the night before Jesus was murdered, they had a meal together. They had a sit-down meal. And Jesus is trying to talk to them about what's going on, and they don't really understand. And Thomas is one of the ones who's just a bit, he just can't grasp what his, his, his friend, his, he calls him his Lord, is, is doing. And he says to him, you know, Lord, what's going on here? And Jesus says, I'm, 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 I'm going to go, and then I'll come back again. And Thomas says, no, no hold on, what do, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he's, he's really sort of direct, he doesn't understand what, what, what's going on. And although Jesus is trying to tell them, Nick, tomorrow something really bad's going to happen, but it's going to, be, it's going to turn out okay, Thomas and the disciples, they're asking lots of questions. Where are you going? What are you doing? Dreadful meal. Have you ever sat at a meal where you're, where something, you're talking about something really bad and you're not quite sure what's going on? It's quite scary. So, that's, that's Thomas. And here he is saying to his friends, who are saying, Jesus is alive again. Saying, show me the evidence. Show me the evidence. A week later... He's in a room, Jesus appears in the room, and the first thing that happens is Jesus goes straight to Thomas. That's what it says here. No reason for John to lie. It's not the sort of thing you would make up. Jesus went straight to this guy, Thomas. Now think about it. You're with your friends a week earlier, and you're saying, unless I've got good evidence... I will not believe. Not, I find it difficult to believe, or you guys are saying that, but I'm not quite sure. I will not believe. And then all of a sudden, in the same room is Jesus, and he heads straight for you. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Any of you ever been in a situation where you've said something that you maybe regretted a little bit? You know, see that person? Well, oh, they're a right so-and-so. You know, they did this, they did that. And someone overhears you, and they repeat it back to you. Nice feeling, isn't it? You know? Didn't you say, oh, <laughs> various words come to your mind and none of them are pronounceable in a church? You've been caught out. This Jesus repeats Thomas's words back to him. Jesus, he, Thomas had said, unless I see this, unless I put my finger, I'm not going to believe. And here's Jesus in front of him, and he says, okay, here I am. Put your fingers through the holes. He gets the opportunity to get his evidence. I'll tell you something that's really odd. There's no indication at all that Thomas actually looked at those wounds in Jesus. No indication at all. What he did was he said, you are my Lord and my God. Up until that point, he'd called Jesus his Lord, someone who could tell him what to do. He was a leader. At that very point, even without looking at the, e the evidence that he'd called for, he believed that he was not just a Lord, but he was God. And do you believe that? Massive change in Thomas's life. Jesus, good man, nice man, good to follow, good teaching. But here's a guy, just because he sees him alive again, not even because of the proof that he asked for, is saying, 
you are my God. Not just a God, but you are my God. What do you make of that? The story's called the story of doubting Thomas. Well, I tell you something, it's not about doubting Thomas, I don't think. Because that defines him. As human beings, and particularly a lot of church people, we're really good at defining people in ways that perhaps are not what Jesus would do. Doubting Thomas. No, Thomas doubted. He doubted for a whole bunch of different mixtures. Personally, you and I, who doubted for a whole bunch of different reasons, he is not doubting Thomas. We define him by doubting Thomas. Well, I tell you something, that's rubbish. What are you defined by? What do your friends define you by? What do church people define you by? Oh, there's that good person. That's great. Oh, there's that sinner. Oh, there's that person who's this. Oh, there's that person who no one likes. We're really good. And religious people, Christian people, sometimes are not immune from this, at putting a label on someone. And all of us in this room have probably been labeled in a horrible, horrible way. And doubting Thomas to Jesus is not doubting Thomas. He is Thomas who doubts and needs to believe. Because we're coming close to something really, really special here. And maybe this is the first time you've heard this. But in Jesus Christ, people who belong to Jesus Christ, their identity is not in their doubting. It's not in their class, their background, their sexuality. It's none of that. It is in Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. Do you think a Christian is someone that does good? Boy, they should. Do you think it's a Christian who signs up to these five different doctrines? Oh, yep, I can believe that one. 80% that one, 80% that one. A Christian is someone whose identity is in Jesus Christ as a son of God. And if you don't see that flip round, you'll miss everything. So, story of doubting Thomas. Let me, let me change it around. Let's look at the story of an amazing, incredible, and beautiful character called Jesus Christ. Because that's who the story's about. And let's look at him. Now, I don't know what you think of, of Jesus. Because of all the sort of religious intolerance that's going on, you might not think very much of him. Tennyson a poet from the 19th century, said, Oh, thou pale Galilean, the earth has grown grey in your breath. That's not very complimentary. But I tell you something, a lot of people feel that. I was in Antarctica for, for two months, and there was a couple of people who, when they found out um, I was a Christian, just would not talk to me um, and blanked me. And when you're in a small base with a small number of people, and folk deliberately blank you. Now, I didn't get a chance to do anything. They just blanked me. And, and I just continued on as normal. Because although they become en enemies, one of the things about being a Christian is you don't get to hate your enemies. You don't get to hate them. It's not a luxury. Lots of people love. Lots of people do, do good things. But loving your enemies, it's part of the job description of Jesus. And so, yeah, there were... There were a couple of them who were really awful to me. But, so what? Jesus says you love your enemies. Either in Antarctica or in church. You love your enemies. So, I, I did, and I just continued. And, and I, I, every time I walked by, I would say hi, or I would engage them, doing stuff together. And at the end of the time, one of the fellas came up to me, 
Um, and he said, John, it's been great having you here. And I wanted to laugh and say, oh, yeah, right. He said, it's been great having you here. He said, um, he said a couple of us have learned something. And okay. He said, you're the first person who's a Christian we've come across who we've known for who they love rather than who they hate. You're the first person. Now, I'm not saying that that's true, but the fact that that was their perception. The Jesus Christ that we see in this passage is a Jesus Christ who loves and loves and loves and doesn't stop. It's his nature. And his children, his, sorry, his brothers and sisters, his father's children, they are defined by being sons and daughters of the living God who love, not hate. And we see it here. Let me give you a John Spicer cynical version of this passage. And Jesus appeared in the room where Thomas was skulking behind the back because he knew that he was a plonker and he'd let him down. And he skulked at the back and as Jesus came in, he looked for Thomas because he'd let him down. The others, they'd been okay, but Thomas, he had doubted him. Smite button, he's got a computer with a smite button. And he finds Thomas, he makes straight to him and he says to Thomas, you're a waster. You're doubting Thomas. You're a waste of space. I gave you all this and you doubted me. How dare you? You're nothing. You don't deserve to be a Christian. The passage doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in here. But I'll tell you something. Very often the way we think we would make the passage see that because that's what we would do. We're so good at judging people. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus knows what Thomas has said. Jesus repeats his words back to him and there's not a word of condemnation in there. Because Jesus tries to give Thomas the evidence that he thinks he needs. That's amazing really, isn't it? Have you ever been let down by someone? Really hurt by someone who doesn't believe in you or thinks bad things about you? And to be able to actually say to that person, come on, it's fine. It's fine. It's wrong, but it's covered. It's not that it didn't hurt. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it's covered. That's what God calls grace. Jesus shows Thomas grace because Jesus is grace. God's undeserved favor on people. God's undeserved favor. And that's what Jesus does with Thomas. This is a story about an amazing Jesus who no matter who Thomas is or what he's done, no matter who you are or what you've done, will come to you and love you with an everlasting love and that will not stop. That will not stop. You can't put him off loving you. And whatever you're going through, whatever situation you're in, he will still love you. And he still wants the very, very best for you. That's why it's called good news. The word gospel means good news. The way sometimes we think about it, and even religious people, they make the good news bad news. Obviously, the guy who talked to me in Antarctica, he didn't see Jesus' good news as good news. He saw it as bad news. Hating people, he thought was bad news. I agree with him. If it causes you to hate, it's not great. That is not Jesus Christ. 
He loves and he loves and he loves. And even this person who said, unless I get this evidence, and Jesus, come. You know, don't doubt, believe. Why do we emphasize the doubt? Why don't we call him believing, Thomas? Have you ever thought that? Because we're blooming good at picking the side that we want, either to do ourselves down or do other people down. Jesus does not do his down. He's one of the few people who is in this world, he is in this world, who is actually for you as a person. One of the few people who is genuinely for you, loving you, wanting to love you, wanting a relationship with you. He's one of the few people, everyone else, we even do it ourselves, we do ourselves down. We do other people down. And sometimes even we do it in the name of our faith. God, forgive us. But Jesus doesn't do that. In this story, Jesus teaches us something really, really important. Okay, am I wrong as a scientist for wanting all that evidence? No. There are times when you actually do need evidence for things. But the idea that seeing is believing, have you ever heard that phrase? It used to be quite common before Photoshop. <laughs> seeing is believing. And all of a sudden, you know, oh, wow, look at that. That's very, very different, and you can't tell. But seeing is believing. I was telling the, the early congregation that, that, that meets here, in, in Nepal, I was, I was praying with people while the, a medical camp was going on, and people were coming in, and as I was praying with them, um, I, I told them about the, Jesus and the fact that he would heal, and, and they asked for healing, and I prayed with them, and they, became, and they said they'd become Christians. And I sat there thinking, yeah, right. You know, it's just, you know, here's the, here's the, the, the rich foreigner come, you've come in, I, I'm, I'm, I'm praying with, with you, and so you're just going to tell me something to keep me happy. And I sat like that for three hours, three hours just thinking to myself, now, on my surface, I'm not, on the surface, I'm a good Christian. Underneath, I'm thinking, what a hypocrite you are. You're sitting here with these people. You're taking advantage of them. You know? I mean, they're coming in, they're saying this to you, and you don't really believe this. Terrible thing. Um, you want me to leave the church afterwards? Fine. And then something happened. Something happened where a man who, who had, had not been able to see for 40 years got his sight back. And it dawned on me, this was real. And I'd sat for three hours watching people being healed and becoming Christians, and I had not seen it. It was like the time of Jesus. It really was like the time of Jesus. The most terrifying, I would like to say wonderful, it was more terrifying than anything else, time I've ever encountered. I got to see the sorts of things that you read about in here, and I couldn't see it. Seeing is not believing. And that's why this story is in here, because what Jesus teaches all of us is that faith in him is a relationship. It's relational. And don't let anyone from any other religion tell you something different. And I mean that even Christian religion. Some people will say, you sign up to these doctrines, that makes you a Christian. You act in a particular way, that makes you a Christian. A Christian is someone who knows Jesus Christ. And what made the, the difference for Thomas was that Thomas saw this person he'd seen for three years. He knew him. It's difficult to think well about people you, you know quite well, isn't it, when you get to know all their peculiarities. And here's this person that Thomas knew, respected, called him Lord, and he calls him my Lord and my God. Not just, oh, you're a God for appearing in the room without opening the door. 
pretty neat. Nice trick. Everyone wants signs. John calls what happens in this passage a sign. And the sign is that Jesus and being with him is relational. Thomas is God and Thomas is Lord has a relationship with him and that's what changed everything for Thomas. That same person wants a relationship with you. So Thomas did get his evidence but it wasn't the evidence that would have actually made a difference. Scientific ways of knowing things are great for knowing But when it comes to relationships, you don't do that. I once knew a man who tried to apply science to his relationships. It was fascinating when his wife had an affair and he felt he had to catch her five times so he had a decent enough sample size. And that's not even a joke. That's a bit crazy. But when it comes to relationships, I'm married to an amazing woman called Fiona who's usually here. Now, some of you will know Fiona. I mean, I could write down about her. I could give you a little sort of summary. I could write down what Fiona's like and things. But, well, you don't really know until you meet her. And you could know a lot about her. You could know her weight. No, you may, maybe not. And you could, know, you, could, you could know different things about her. But it doesn't, it's not the same as knowing. This book, now hear me right here, contains a lot of stuff. But without knowing Jesus Christ... It doesn't help you very much. In fact, many people have turned this book into a tyrant because they've used it without knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the religious people in his time, you search this, you go through it, thinking you'll find life. But it talks about me. As soon as that dawns on you, that this talks about Jesus Christ, it changes everything. This really is a message from God to you as long as you realize that it's about Jesus. It's not about the things that you want to bring to it. It's about Jesus Christ. So, here's the challenge that when when I forget that my faith is relational, because I do. Every once in a while, sometimes more than that, I forget that my faith is relational. It's based on a relationship with a person. How do I know that? Because I don't spend time with him. I don't spend time talking to him. I don't spend time in his presence. I don't read about the stuff that he's done and, and talk to him about it. That's how I know it's relational. I also, I get, tired of, I get tired of being with people and having to put them before myself. It really hacks me off sometimes. God forgive me. But when I'm with people and it's relationship with them, And I realize that Jesus is acting through me. It's the best thing in the world. The best thing in the world. And yet, yet I get tired of it. And I I avoid relationship. Or if I'm doing something wrong, and I'm determined to do that wrong thing, not that such a thing could ever happen to such an amazing person as me, I avoid relationship. It's funny, I avoid relationship with God, but also with other people as well. So destructive. And the question that I ask myself, John, do you know him? Not do you know about Jesus, but do you actually know him? I, I gave a, I was in a, a, a cafe. Um, it was a scientific cafe, and we were talking about science and faith, and this, this man said to me, so how do, you, how do you make sense of this science and faith together? You know, what's your faith look like? And so I, I told him, 
And I said to them very much what I said to you, you know, it's relational. And I said, I know God. That's the difference. You know, it's not just theology, I know God. And this man at the front, quite rightly, piped very quickly and said, oh, you know God, do you? And what he was trying to say was, what an arrogant person you are. He was right, actually. I'm beginning to get to know God. I'm beginning to get to But I am beginning to get to know And I do know him a wee bit. He knows me much better. Jesus died so that we could have a real friendship. And I'm beginning to catch on to that friendship. I'm beginning. I mean, I've only had, what, 40 years of being a Christian? So it's nothing. I've only had 40 years of being a Christian. So I'm just starting. But I'm getting to know him. But I know him. My question to you is, do you know him? Do you know who I'm talking about? Not about him, about Jesus, he died, lived, maybe not. Do you know him? Is he part of your life? Do you know that the reason he came was for you? And that's the next part. In the same way as Jesus came to that room and he went straight to Thomas, do you realize that the Jesus who is here with us will go straight to you, whoever you are? Now, this is bammy stuff. This stuff, some, some wacky scientist at the front is really going, ooh. What happens if it's real, though? What happens if it's real is that Jesus is here and in the same way as he went straight to Thomas and knew everything about Thomas. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that his spirit is real and alive in people. And I can tell you, his spirit will come to each of us. And that spirit will actually know everything about us. Absolutely every single detail about you. All the stuff you've been thinking during this, all the nasty thoughts you've had about me wanting to shut up, as well as all the stuff this morning, he'll know absolutely everything about you. Every deep secret that you've kept from your mother, your father, your wife, your husband, your children, yourself. He knows every deep secret. Everything. But don't be terrified. Because he's for you. He's for you. Even knowing who you are, he's for you. In the same way as he went to Thomas, made a beeline, we'd say, for Thomas. He makes a beeline for you because he loves you. The gospel is good news. Jesus Christ loves you, died for you, and wants a relationship with you. Even though he knows every single thing about you. All the good and the bad. And he loves you still. And if you don't have a faith at all and you want to meet Jesus Christ, you can do that. You can do that today. The second thing, and I ask myself this, and this is mainly for people who are a bit more religious in the room. Knowing God, this is what I ask myself. How much of my time do I spend defending doctrines or defending my beliefs rather than living them? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying doctrines or beliefs can be wrong, but as soon as those are the things which you're living by rather than living in Jesus Christ, you're in a hiding to nothing. The religious life, not knowing Jesus, is hell on earth. A religious life without having Jesus at the center of it is hell on earth. Because what happens is your doctrines, good that though they might be, your beliefs, good that they might be, they take over, and we tend to warp things. All of us tend to warp things to our own advantage. I, I, was, I was doing a book, book club 
a book club. I don't, I don't know what it's called. It's a thing where 60 or 70 people come together and you discuss books. Is that a book club? Yeah, whatever. And um, we were talking about a book. It was supposed to be about marine biology, which is my subject, but it was really about home and what makes home, and it was about relationship. And this woman who was a, an ex-vicar's wife, um, she sort of piped up and she defended, you know, I mean, she, she said, I feel I must defend Christian marriage. I must. And she went on and she was very good at, and, and what she said, you know, what she said made sense. It was great. And then she sort of wandered off and talked about the fact that her husband who'd been a vicar and, the, and just how desperately unhappy she had been in that relationship. And all of a sudden this bitterness about all the stuff was spilling out in front of all these people. It was absolutely horrific. My heart just went out to the woman. But I didn't know what to do. And um, there, there was a man and his wife there. He was 91, she's 90. And he sort of stood up um, and he said, I hear what everyone's saying. And he said, there's an awful lot of truth in what's being said in here. He says, but in some ways I don't really share where you're going from this. He says, we have only been married for 50 years. And we're beginning to get a hang of this. He says, and I only have one regret. And he says, don't get me wrong, we fight and we bicker and everything else. I only have one regret. And that is, I'm 91 and we're probably not going to have another 50 years because now that I know what I'm sort of doing, it's quite good. The difference being that that first poor woman, and like so many of us, we have beliefs and we defend them. Belief in the Bible, belief in this. All things which are great. But if you don't live it, so what? So what? The world has had enough of Christians telling them their beliefs. What they do believe and what they don't believe. Who they love, who they hate. What Jesus Christ brings is very, very different. And the world, you and I, to see Jesus Thomas stood right in front of Jesus and he saw him face to face and he said my Lord and my God it's the only thing that's going to change things and you can't be the same after that no amount of trying hard no amount of being moral no amount of defending the, the beliefs of the church is going to say anything compared with someone who lives the life of Jesus that's how I became a Christian when I was 17 I knew that all the stuff Christians believe was rubbish. Clearly it's rubbish. People come rising from the dead, Holy Spirit. It's rubbish. But what happens when you see Jesus face to face and in a bunch of ordinary people in a really rubbish part of Glasgow, I saw Jesus Christ and I saw his face through ordinary men and women who lived like him. They were quite traditional church. Don't get me wrong. They weren't super happy, clappy or anything. They were quite traditional. But they lived like Jesus because they had Jesus living with them and they reflected Jesus. And it's very difficult to fight against that. I can, I can give you really good reasons for not being a Christian doctrinally. I really can. I can think of lots of things now that I've discovered over the years. That, that if, if my faith was based purely on doctrines, I think I might suffer a bit. But it's not. I've seen Jesus. I saw him when I was 17 in that church. I've seen him ever since in other people. And occasionally, just occasionally, I get to see him in myself. And it's the most beautiful thing. And when Thomas said, my God, he really meant it. And it wasn't because he did the trick about appearing in a room. It's because when you look into the face of Jesus, there is just such beauty and such love towards you. 
It is supernatural. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. So do you know him? If you're religious, do you spend most of your time fighting about doctrines rather than actually living it? And thirdly, and I try to ask myself this every morning, um, I don't sometimes because I make up my mind deliberately in the morning not to go this way. That's the truth. Not proud of it, but there we have it. And I say, which direction am I facing? Am I facing towards you, Jesus? Am I facing towards where you're going and what you're doing? Or am I just going to go my own way? What are you doing? Where are you right now? I don't care about the past. I, I once made a mistake with a Baptist minister. Um, I was trying to impress him, right? Really nice guy. Um, and I, I was, as, as a youngster, I was, I was super Christian. I mean, I was involved in so much. I could really impress the boots off you with how good I was at evangelism and bringing cities together and everything else. But if I put it together on a CV, it'd be pretty impressive. And so I'm with this guy, and, and he didn't know me, so I thought, I need to, in a humble way, let him see that he's dealing with quality here. Um, God, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that lightly only because I'm embarrassed by it, but it's the truth. And so we, we started to talk, and, and I, I talked about my achievements and what I had done for the Lord and all this sort of stuff. And he was a lovely man, just like Jesus. Instead of saying to me, actually, you're, a, you're someone that speaks a lot of rubbish. <laughs> he didn't do that. He said, John, that's brilliant. I'm so pleased to hear all that. Where are you now? Which direction are you facing in right now? And I burst into tears, actually, because I was facing myself at that moment in time. All the great achievements and all the stuff at that moment in time didn't mean anything. And he just said to me, just look to Jesus. Which direction are you looking? If you don't know him, look at him. Do what I did. Read John's Gospel. Or talk to someone. Or look for him in church. Someone once said to me, oh, if you want to know about what Jesus is like, don't look at the church. Look at only Jesus. Well, I tell you something. Jesus has got a crazy idea. He's got a crazy, stupid idea that church actually is his hands and feet and body. And so this idea of don't look at the church, we should be able to look at the church because we're the hands and the feet of Jesus. So don't use it as a cop-out. Look to Jesus. Are you looking to Jesus? Is that, where you're, is that the direction you're looking in? Whether you're just about to become a Christian, whether you're going to go out of here thinking, this is rubbish, I'm not doing this again. Which direction are you looking in? If you've been a Christian 50 years, and you've been, no, I, I don't care, missionary, whatever, which direction are you looking in? Because Jesus doesn't look around and think, yeah, they're visiting me here in the first time, or they're pretty good, they've been there 30 years and they did this for me. He doesn't think to do that. He comes to you just like Thomas, and he does come to you, and he says, I love you. I really, really love you. I've died for you. And I want us to have a genuine friendship. And he says that to you no matter who you are. Which direction are you looking in? Are you looking towards yourself? Are you looking somewhere else? Are you looking towards Jesus? Do you know him? Are you so caught up with beliefs and, and, and creeds and everything else that you're lost up your own, well, whatever? And which direction are you looking in? Because this passage teaches us there's a relational God who wants a relationship with you. Whether you don't know him yet and you can come to know him, come and talk. 
or whether you've known him for a hundred years and you've become a bitter, twisted person. Do you know I know someone in this church? I know someone in this church who had really lost their way. And they had managed to let a whole load of bitterness and nastiness get into their, into their life. Um, and, and they called it faith and justified it with faith. And it took that person's daughter to go to them and point out that, Dad, you're a child of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten you're a child of God. You forgot to be relational. You've left them out. You know all about them. And if you carry on like this, you will be with Jesus, but you will be bitter and twisted. Do you know someone in that church this church, that's them why do I know that? why am I so confident? I'm that man knowing Jesus isn't just about salvation oh I'm going to get saved and go to heaven who cares about going to heaven if it's actually just some place where you sing with blooming angels all the time but knowing Jesus Christ if you aren't a Christian come to him, he's beautiful he's absolutely beautiful be part of the solution rather than the problem. Come to him. He'll love you and he will not let you go no matter what. No matter what you've done. And he'll live with you. Heaven in your heart. But my appeal is also to my other brothers and sisters who already know a little bit about Jesus. Please can't we actually make it something where we get to know more rather than the world look at us and have to say, oh, I've only ever known what you, what you hated rather than what you loved. Because I'll tell you something, I became a Christian because I saw people live it. I want to be part of a congregation here that when anyone gets involved or sees what's going on here, they see not us, because let's face it, we're a motley bunch. But they see Jesus Christ and they are so attracted by his beauty and what he's done that you can't stop them coming to faith. You can't stop them coming to faith. So the story is not about doubting Thomas. Thomas is not doubting Thomas. He's Thomas who doubts. He's a child of God and he's loved by Jesus Christ. And the story is the loving, amazing, beautiful Jesus. That's what the story is about. Don't forget it or you lose everything.